The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived in a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. This door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be, will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I do want to add my welcome to that of John's. Uh, we are glad that y'all are here this morning. Uh, we trust the Lord will bless all of our time together. Uh, before we jump in and um, look at this passage, though, let me, uh, let me pray for us. It is a huge passage. People write books over just the Lord's prayer part. So we have uh, much to cover and much to skim over uh, in the next 25 minutes or so. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word for the promises that you give us about it that it will never return to you void that it will always accomplish the purposes for which you sent it we thank you lord for how you've used us used it to grow us in grace or how you've used it to show us our sin and our need and also to show us the beauty of jesus who paid for our sin and gives us his righteousness and we pray that as we look at your word this morning, Lord, that you would be at work deep in our hearts, growing us and deepening us in faith and repentance, that we might, through the miracle of your grace, live our lives to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Indeed, we come this morning to a familiar section of Luke's gospel in which we find his version of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's a version that when you heard it read a minute ago, it's not as familiar to us as Matthew's version. It really isn't. 
And yet it's wonderfully instructive. It's a wonderfully encouraging passage uh, to many of us uh, who struggle. It's one of the struggles of the Christian life who find it difficult to really pray. Back in 2016, uh, Tim Keller wrote a book on prayer called Prayer, subtitled Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. And in that book, he tells the story of a Norwegian minister and author named, I don't know how to pronounce it, O-L-E, Ul, how do you pronounce it in Norwegian? Ul, Hallesby. He likened prayer, this minister likened prayer to mining as he knew it in Norway in the early part of the 20th century. And this was uh, Dr. Uh, Halsby's uh, description of prayer. He, he, he's talking about mining and he says, demolition, uh, demolition in mining uh, to create mine shafts takes two basic actions. He says, first, there are long periods of time when the deep holes are being bored into the hard rock with great effort. To bore these holes deeply enough into the most strategic spots for removing the main body of work, of rock, excuse me, was work that required great patience and steadiness and skill. You get the picture of boring those deep holes. But once the holes were finished, he writes about what's called the shot being dropped. They drop the dynamite connected to a fuse. They drop the shot down into the hole. And this is what Halsby wrote about that. He said, to light the fuse and fire the shot is not only easy, but it's also very interesting. One sees results immediately. Shots resound and pieces of rock fly in every direction. And this was his conclusion. While the more painstaking work requires patient strength of character, anyone can light a fuse. And then he ties it to prayer. And he, and he basically is warning his readers of this. He's warning us against praying only what he calls fuse lighting prayers. The kind of prayers that we pray on the spur of the moment, we don't pray them for long. If we don't get immediate results, we just move on from those. And he goes on to say that if we really believe in the power of prayer and we really believe in the wisdom of God, our lives will be marked with patience in our prayer lives. Patient, what he calls whole boring prayer. Mature believers, he says, mature believers understand that patience in prayer is part of what makes it so effective. Not necessarily in changing our situation, but in changing us. Mature believers know that those extremes have to be avoided. The extremes of thinking, it doesn't matter if I pray, so I won't even bother. Or the other other extreme of thinking, somehow, if I pray just right, I can bend God's will to mine. We have to avoid those. We have to combine uh, striving with God in prayer with a deep acceptance of His wise and perfect will, whatever that might be. And that's hard work. In our passage this morning, Jesus is giving us his own prescription for prayer. And it really is, it's a huge passage to try to tackle in one morning, so uh, we're going to cover part of it more quickly than you might think. But first, I want you to see in your outline in your bulletin, first I want us to see Jesus' practice in prayer. Look at verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. 
Now, it's tempting when we read that first verse to just kind of skip right over it. To skip right over it and treat it as if Luke's just giving us a bit of background here. He's saying, here's the setting. Jesus is praying one day and his, one of his disciples says, hey, how about you teach us to pray? But it's so much more than that. So much more than that. Jesus' personal practice of prayer was awakening something in the disciples of their need to pray. And they're saying, Jesus, teach us to pray. Jesus didn't, he just didn't say, look, guys, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a Christian, one of my disciples, then there's about eight things you, learn, you need to learn to do, and one of those is prayer, so let me tell you how. It wasn't that at all. They saw him praying and thought there's something about that. We want to learn to pray. I was thinking about that this week as I was thinking about my grandmother. My grandmother, uh, her name was Gilmore Lynn. I've talked about her before. She was, uh, in many ways, my spiritual role model uh, growing up. And she never said to me, if you're really a Christian, Frank, you got to learn this Christian discipline. She never said that to me. But her life said that. I was thinking about her life this week. She worked full-time. Uh, full-time, she was the headmistress of St. Mary's Episcopal Girls School in Memphis. Uh, she worked full-time while caring for her invalid mother-in-law for 20 years that lived with her. She lost her husband when she was younger than I was, than I am now. She lost her son to cancer at 40. She had a, a horrible injury uh, in her 70s, and yet she lived till 99 and three quarters. That was a life well lived. And you know what? When she prayed, whew, five, six years old, professing faith, when she prayed, it made me want to have some kind of relationship with my Heavenly Father like she had with hers. Didn't count on that one touching me. She'd been gone 20 years. Evidently, the disciples had that really on steroids. Witnessing Jesus, witnessing him pray, which, witnessing him give himself to prayer on more than one occasion, over and over, they were saying, Lord, teach us to pray. John's disciples were taught to pray, teach us to pray. Prayer is this, prayer is a natural expression of a relationship with God. They're saying, teach us to do that. Teach us to commune that way with God. Think about just Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 3, at Jesus' baptism, he's praying. In Luke 5, he's healing a leper. And at the end of the healing of the leper, we read this. Luke records, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. In Luke 6, right before he chooses the 12 disciples, we read, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night in prayer. In Luke 9, right before Peter's confession of, the, of Jesus as the Christ, this is what we read. Right before that, it says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked him, who do the crowds say that I am? It's clear prayer was a regular part of Jesus' life. So you may be wondering, okay, I got it. What's the point? Well, here's the point. If Jesus, the second person of the Trinity... The sinless God-man, God incarnate, if it was part of his everyday practice to pray and commune with his heavenly Father, what would ever cause us to think that we don't need to do the same? I love what J.C. Ryle wrote on prayer. 
J.C. Ryle was writing about pastors, but I think it's true, that, or his point at the end is true for all of us. But he writes about pastors in their prayer lives, and he said this, a man may preach from false motives. A man may write books and make fine speeches and seem diligent in good works, and yet still be a Judas Iscariot. But a man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is in earnest. Here it is. The Lord himself has set his stamp on prayer as the best proof of a true conversion. It's not true just for pastors. It's true for all of us. It's the best proof of a true conversion. Jesus communed daily with his heavenly father. That should be our practice too. So first, Jesus practice in prayer. Secondly, I want you to see Jesus' pattern for prayer. But before we read verses two through four, I wanna point something out about this pattern here. The pattern that we're gonna look at is not something that we're to be enslaved to. That's not what he meant when he said, I'm gonna teach you how to pray, and he gave us the Lord's Prayer. He's not saying you're obligated to pray this way, and if you don't pray this way, your prayers won't be heard. That's not what he's saying. I love what Kent Hughes wrote in his commentary. He was writing about this and, and he was telling the story. If you remember Peter, when Peter got out of the boat and Jesus is walking towards him in the storm, walking on the water and Peter starts walking on the water and he takes his eyes off Jesus and he starts to sink. You know, what does Peter pray? Lord, save me. This is what Kent Hughes said. He said, if Peter had first begun with our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, he would have been blowing bubbles before he got to the point. So this is, this is a, a great structure, a great logic for prayer. It's invaluable to us, but it doesn't have to be a formula that precludes us just crying out, Lord, save me, help me. Help me in my time of need. And as we read it, I want you to notice a couple of things. One, uh, there's a vertical as aspect to it at the beginning, and then there's a horizontal aspect to it. It's much like the Ten Commandments. But listen to how he teaches us to pray. He says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. There's a lot there. If you, if you look at your outline, you'll see the most phenomenal alliteration with the letter P that you'll ever see. And you know me well enough to know I didn't come up with it. Ralph Davis came up with it in his commentary, but it's so helpful, especially in the fact that we're gonna go over this relatively quickly so we can get to what follows. Jesus says, when you pray, not if you pray, you say, Father. That's the pattern of prayer. That's where it begins for those to whom Jesus has made the Father known. We're the ones, if we're trusting in Jesus, we're the ones who are granted the privilege of starting our prayers with the word Father, the name Father. Remember, Matthew's version says, our Father who art in heaven, but Luke's doesn't say that. Luke's just says Father. Now, it, Jesus probably taught on prayer more than once, but this is what Luke is recording. And think about it, think of the difference in those two things. Our Father who art in heaven versus just Father. Luke's version implies not so much that cosmic 
uh, distance that's implicit with the words who art in heaven as it does that fatherly intimacy and care that comes with just using the word or the title addressing him as father. That would have been stunning to Jesus' listeners to start a prayer with father or my father. In the Old Testament, the writers in the Old Testament, they believed in the fatherhood of God, but they saw him more as a sovereign creator God slash father than anything else. If you went through the Old Testament, you'll see God referred to as father 14 times, but 14 times in 39 books. And each time, it's more to his role with the nation than it is to individuals. He's called Israel's father, the nation of Israel's father. You don't find people calling God my father, addressing him that way. But when Jesus comes, everything changes. Instead of 14 times in 39 books, in the four gospels, Jesus addresses God as father over 60 times. So the traditional Jew would have been shocked by this. You just don't address the sovereign God of the universe as father. I love what William Barclay, who was a Scottish pastor and theologian, I love how he captures the Uh, the sense of intimacy here, the intimate relationship here. He tells the story of a Roman emperor who's coming back to Rome after achieving a great victory on the battlefield. And you can picture the scene, the emperor's coming through the gates. Uh, All of his soldiers are marching uh, next to his chariot. The chariot's following the soldiers. The streets are lined with cheering people and the, the emperor comes through the city streets on his chariot. Guards are posted all along the, the, uh, the route of the emperor, and their job is to keep people from getting into the streets and getting anywhere near the emperor. And yet, as the, as the chariot got close to the platform that had the emperor's family sitting on it, the young son of the emperor sees the chariot approaching, sees it's his dad, jumps off the platform, and tries to get to his dad tries to get to the chariot and this big old soldier scoops him up and says boy you can't do that don't you know who's in that chariot that's the emperor you can't run out to his chariot and the little boy just smiled and laughed and said well he may be your emperor but he's my dad it's a great picture it's a great picture it's 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 meant to astound our hearts that's the instruction Jesus gives us The sovereign creator God of the universe says, address me as father. If you're mine, if you're trusting in Jesus, address me in prayer as father. When that really penetrates our hearts, we don't don't recover from that. The one who upholds all creation says, call me father. Start your prayers with father. And then he begins, he shifts from the privilege there. And look what comes next in the pattern the preeminence of God in terms of what are we to pray for how are we to pray father hallowed be your name pray that God's name would be hallowed would be recognized as holy pray for the preeminence of God in all things that he's the first in honor the first in exaltation he surpasses all things pray to that end is what he's saying it's a vertical prayer hallowed be your name but not just his preeminence, his purpose. He, he says, the next, your kingdom come. 
He says, our prayers, your prayers and mine should be marked, not just praying for the preeminence of God, but also that his kingdom would come. And if you think about it, that's the antidote to our self-absorption. We'd pray for the kingdom to come in all its fullness and all its glory and all its power. We'd pray that Jesus would return. We'd pray the, uh, the picture of Revelation 21 where John talks about the vision he had of heaven uh, descending into earth. John said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Jesus says the starting point is to address God as Father and then to focus on the vertical, on the preeminence of God, praying for His glory to be made known, praying for the purposes of God that His kingdom would be established on the earth in all of its fullness. But He doesn't say that's what you're to pray for and stop there. He says, you start with the vertical and then you go to the horizontal, to your own needs. And look what he says there in verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. He says, pray for God's provision in our lives. We're needy people. We're dependent on him. Give us each day our daily bread. We pray that, you know, with a straight face. But do we want each day our daily bread? Or deep down we're... We really want enough of, like I think of number 16, like where God says, I'm going to give you manna every day. You're going to wake up and it's just going to be there as you're wandering in the wilderness. It will be there, but you can't store it up. We want to store it up so we don't have to live dependent lives on him. He says, you don't need to be praying to win the lottery. Pray for your daily bread that God would provide for you each day what you need. But not just his provision, Pray for his pardon. Look at the next one, verse 4. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Pray for his pardon, because we may be redeemed, but we're still sinners. He's implying, actually he's just kind of stating it, that the Christian life is going to be one of continual repentance. Christian life's not going to be one of we repent and come to faith and that's the end of it. Forgive us our sins, our ongoing struggle with sins, recognizing it and asking God to forgive it. But he's also making it clear, forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. He's, he's saying don't ask for God's forgiveness while withholding it from others. So he's saying pray for his provision, pray for his pardon, pray for his protection because we so easily fall into temptation. We recognize our weakness. That's what we're doing when we pray that. We recognize our weakness. We pray that that God would keep us from situations where we might be tempted to deny him and to fail our Lord. It's a great pattern that God gives us here or or that Jesus gives us here for how we're to pray. How we're to pray as children of our Heavenly Father and for what we're to pray for vertically and horizontally. But he doesn't stop there. And that's what made this passage kind of hard to take in one week. He doesn't stop there. He goes past there to give us the encouragement we need that we might see a brand new paradigm in praying. Let me, before we look at this paradigm though, let me, let me uh, 
Let me just for our younger members define the word paradigm. The paradigm, the simple definition is it's just a way of looking at something. So when we talk about a new paradigm of prayer, we're talking about a new way of seeing prayer, a new way of seeing things that we didn't see it this way before. That's what he's doing here in these last verses, and he's giving us two different examples of it. Look at the first one in verse 5 through 10. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now there's so much in there. But I want to just go for the core of it in the time that we have. I think the key to it is found in verse 8 and the word impudence. How many of y'all use that word on a weekly basis? That's not one the pastors are like, nope, never used it. Impudence. The, the NIV translates it as boldness. We think of it, when we read this story, we think of it in terms of persistence, right? Luke 18, the story of the, the, story of the persistent widow, but it's not that word. It's a Greek word. It's so much more than persistence. It's a Greek word that literally means shameless audacity. Do you pray that way? I've never done this before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a definition from the Greek lexicon. <laughs> Y'all are like, oh, wonderful, because it's so good. In the Greek lexicon, it, it defines this word negatively and positively, and it's important if we're really going to get a, a different look at um, a different paradigm here. Negatively, it says this word, it means as insensitivity to what is proper, shamelessness or boldness, insensitivity to what's proper. In a positive sense, tenacious insistence without regard to time, place, or person. Shameless audacity. Is that the way we pray? Yeah. You know, last Sunday night when we gathered to pray for Ellen Thompson, there were some prayers that were offered that way. But are our prayers for God's glory and the coming of his kingdom, are they marked with tenacious audacity before our heavenly father? Are our prayers for our daily bread, for our pardon of sin, for protection from the enemy, are they marked by shameless audacity before our heavenly father? That's what Jesus is instructing us to do here. That should be the heart attitude we have in prayer. So how is the paradigm of prayer in our lives to change? Really, you might say from shameful faint-heartedness to shameless tenacity. That should mark our prayers. But secondly, shifting to believing in God as a good father. Look at verse 11 through the end. For what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
Jesus, if you notice, he's wrapping up his teaching on how to pray here. He's wrapping it up, returning to the theme of the fatherhood of God. He's saying this, in effect. He's saying, when you pray, remember to whom you pray. He's not a stern God or a harsh God. He's a good and loving heavenly father. He's a good and loving heavenly father who delights to give good gifts to his children. We were talking about this Monday morning as pastors and, and uh, admitting that if we're really honest with ourselves, many of us tend to struggle with two aspects of God. We struggle with his sovereignty and we struggle with his goodness. You see what goes on in the world around us. We see what goes on in our own hearts. We see what goes on in our families and amongst our friends, and we struggle. And for those of us who grew up maybe in the Reformed faith or have studied it and really embraced the Reformed faith, we would say we struggle far more with the goodness of God than we do with His sovereignty. Jesus knows our hearts. Believing in God as a good heavenly father is what he's addressing in these last verses. He's saying to us that, he's assuring us that even though, like take for example, our hearts, he's saying they're dark and evil and sinful, and yet we still want to give good gifts to our children. How much more will our heavenly father want to give good gifts to us? Even things that are hard, things that we did not ask for, and things that we do not understand. He's a good and loving Heavenly Father. I need to start wrapping up here. I want to tell you a story uh, about a, a, a freelance reporter in London named Jim Bartholomew. He wrote an article earlier this year in the Wall Street Journal. Maybe some of you read it. It was entitled, Raspberries for Cauliflower, The Bizarre World of Online Grocery Store Substitutions. How many of y'all have used Instacart? He writes, he, he did this, wrote this article and he did all these interviews and he writes of this girl and her roommate who one night, late at night, they were craving ice cream. So they used Instacart, the grocery shopping app, to order ice cream. They asked for strawberry shortcake ice cream. That's the specific one they wanted and they received sausage, egg, and cheese breakfast rolls. The girl was being interviewed said this to Jim, says, I was craving this one specific ice cream, but I guess Walmart had other plans. <laughs> and Jim goes on to write this. He says, global supply chains are in turmoil. Supermarket shelves are looking sparse. So order packers are winging it. Roses swapped for bell peppers. A thermometer switched for mac and cheese. A rapid COVID test traded for Hall's throat lozenges. <laughs> he contacted Instacart and a spokesman said this, that high demand and supply chain issues indeed have troubled many of their grocery partners. And instead, Instacart now gives replacement recommendations. But the representative on the phone admitted that sometimes shoppers are left amused, sometimes they're puzzled, and sometimes they're annoyed. And then he interviewed this one guy, Rhett Mitter. He, he said this, as there have been different supply chain issues and shortages, you notice some very weird substitutions. He said he needed horseradish to make sauce for shrimp, but despite ordering it, 
through Instacart for Whole, from Whole Foods, the product wasn't available. The substitute delivered was beets. He said, my wife and I laughed about it. You just can't make cocktail sauce with ketchup and beets. It's true. Delivery services are making off-the-wall substitutions, but Jesus never does that when we pray. God never substitutes inferior products in answer to our prayer requests. And with our God, there are never any supply issues. He's good, he's loving, he's faithful. He always answers us according to his good and perfect will. Paul tells us in Romans 8, he who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He will. And he'll give us the grace to learn and grow through them all. I want to end now just with one of my favorite um, quotes on prayer. It's by an English Methodist preacher from the late 1800s named Samuel Chadwick. Maybe some of y'all have heard of him. This is the greatest quote on prayer. He said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. Activities are multiplied in our lives so that prayer might be ousted. Organizations are increased, even churches, so that prayer may have no chance. The one concern of the devil is to keep his saints from praying. He fears nothing, nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless labor, and prayerless religion. Here it is. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom. But he trembles when we pray. Let's pray now. Lord, we have been uh, asking you to bring renewal to our hearts, Lord, not just to our facility, beautiful as it is. We're asking you to bring it to our hearts. We're asking you, Lord, to change our hearts, change our attitude towards prayer and give us a deep desire to commune with you each day. We read quotes like this from Samuel Chadwick and we realize that in some ways these things mark our lives. We're busy, maybe too busy to pray, we think. But as Chadwick said, the evil one fears nothing but trembles when we pray. So we ask, Lord, that, uh, that even this day and this week that you would let us experience through the power of your Spirit a marked change in the way we desire you and desire to commune with you. That you really would change us through your grace, that you'd grow us in repentance and faith, and Lord, that you would use lives like ours to bring glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.